Good evening and welcome. Our first song tonight, 943. 943. Four hundred fifty, four five zero. For our prayer and scripture reading, number 642. 
Good evening. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. It's Matthew 19, 16 through 22. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to, to him, Why call, callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He said unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto, unto him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that which you have and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasures in heaven and come and follow me but when the young man heard that saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions pray with me father we just thank you for this opportunity to come into your house and study your word we pray that uh, you'll be with Chris as he brings uh, your word to us tonight. Open our hearts that uh, we might receive it. Give us wisdom and understanding that we may use it in the coming days and weeks ahead to be a witness for you. We pray for the uh, ones that are on our uh, prayer list, Father. We ask that uh, you be with each one, that you might comfort them and heal them. Be with their doctors, Father, and give them wisdom to know how to treat their patients. We pray for this country, Father. Uh, we have fallen so far, and just pray that uh, you'll uh, forgive us and that uh, we might be able to turn uh, back and serve you once again. We pray for our leaders, Father. Uh, we just pray that uh, they might uh, once again search for you and your wisdom that uh, they might uh, be able to help turn this nation around. We pray for each one here this evening, Father, that you might bless them in a special way and bring them home safely again. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before our sermon this evening, we'll sing number 883, 883. If you can, please, let's stand as we sing this song. <clears throat> mm. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness.
back with us this evening. We are talking through um, addiction tonight, overcoming addiction. At the beginning of this year, we, we kind of sat down and talked about some uh, seminars that we could provide for the community that we thought would be helpful uh, for uh, a big majority, at least, of, of our community. And so we started off with marriage, and we did that um, back in, uh, in February, right before or right after Valentine's Day. I think it was right before um, and that went really great. Um, uh, one of our brothers from, from the North Beckley congregation came down and delivered a powerful lesson for us on marriage. And then the following Sunday night, we tried to uh, provide a biblical, um, uh, maybe a different slant uh, than what he was able to provide. He, he focused on very practical matters uh, there in that seminar. And so Sunday night, we tried to provide a biblical perspective on marriage and, and God's view of marriage and how he would have us to to use marriage and what it's designed for. And so um, this past Tuesday, we brought in Keith Cole. Uh, Keith is Alan Cole's son. If you haven't made the connection there, Keith, uh, Alan is the, the minister at the 26th Street Church of Christ. His son is a talented counselor who lives in Charleston. He's a clinical supervisor at the um, at the, uh, the the place where he works uh, so he's one of the guys that's in charge, but he's very humble, very kind, and graciously decided to be with us uh, Tuesday night and did a fantastic job. If you haven't made him, been able to listen to uh, his lesson yet, I would highly suggest you go back and listen to it. Um, I was making all kinds of connections uh, in my mind as he was talking. I told him afterwards, oh, man, I have to go back and listen to your lesson three or four more times because every time you would say something, I would start thinking, oh, that's interesting, and I would follow that train of thought. And then I'd wake up again and, you know, and, and think, oh, this is another interesting connection. I, I need to follow that. And we just kind of did that for, for about the hour that he spoke. Um, but obviously this is a, a topic um, that is very prevalent, especially in our area. Um, he brought out that night that it's, it's kind of prevalent everywhere. And this is something that, that people have been dealing with for a very long time. And the statistics on it are just staggering. Um, let me give you a definition. This is the definition he used that night. Uh, it's from one of the, uh, uh, the handbooks that counselors use uh, to treat uh, various patients. But this is the, the addiction definition that they use. Addiction is a treatable, chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. Basically, they don't know what causes it. Um, but a variety of things do indeed cause it. It is treatable, but it is chronic. Um, people with addictions, uh, addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. It's kind of like when you taught your kids that the oven's hot and they didn't listen to you and they touched the oven, what happened? They burned their hand and they didn't touch the oven again, right? Addiction doesn't work like that. The, it, it's rewired the brain, and so they keep on touching the oven. Ah, oh, it's hot. I'm going to touch it again. Ah, oh, it's hot. It's still hot. It's, it's rewired how they think. And so despite the harmful consequences that addiction uh, has borne out in these folks' lives, they still go back to it. Um, so that is uh, something that it's difficult for a lot of us to wrap our brains around, but I think that's true, and he certainly bore that out uh, Tuesday night. And so I, th I think this is a good working definition for us uh, for addiction and, and kind of gives us some insight into our friends uh, and family members that struggle with addiction. This is kind of um, helps us grab a hold of it a little bit and understand that kind of mentality because it is so prevalent 
uh, especially in our area, but really across the world. Uh, the statistics he was throwing out that night, you, you've got to go back and listen to his lesson, but the statistics that he was throwing out that night were overwhelming. Um, and he was looking at addiction as, as a whole, and I, I think that's helpful for us as well. Not just substance abuse addictions, but gambling, drinking, uh, pornography, all, all the addictions combined. Uh, and when he started throwing out those numbers for who around you was struggling with some addiction of some variety, um, it, it's overwhelming how many people are struggling like that. And you begin to see yourself in some of those addictions as he was talking. You go, oh, yeah, I've I, I can see either myself or my friends or my family members in, in that situation. And it starts to make a lot more sense, doesn't it? It's been around for a while. Um, Joe read for you Matthew, uh, Matthew 19, verse 16 through 22. It's obviously the account of the rich young ruler. This guy's got an addiction problem, though, doesn't he? You may not look at it like that. I've never looked at it like that before I started studying for this lesson. But this, this young guy's got an addiction problem. He's addicted to his money. You know how we know that? Because he chose it over Jesus. Despite the harmful consequences, he still made that decision. That's an addiction. You find this guy who obviously wants to do what's right. From what the text tells us, this guy doesn't come to Jesus in an attempt to trip him up. Lots of people during the Gospels, come to Jesus in an attempt to trip him up, in an attempt to catch him in his words or in his doctrine or in his teaching. Of course, they're not able to, but this guy doesn't, doesn't come with that mindset. He, he comes with a genuine question, and he comes with the exact right question. This guy's a spiritual guy. You've you got to put yourself in this guy's shoes. You can, you can kind of identify with this guy, especially at the outset. Good teacher, what, what do I have to do to be saved? That's a question we should all be asking. And Jesus answers them from the law of Moses. Well, You've got you to obey the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, well, I've done all those things since I was a little boy. This guy's a righteous guy. Not, not everyone can say that, not that they follow the Ten Commandments. Even in Jesus' day, certainly not everyone could say that, that they followed those commandments to the letter of the law. But this guy has. He's genuinely a spiritual guy. He's a good man. You would like this guy. He would fit in perfectly uh, um, in our congregation. He's a good man, spiritual guy. He's concerned about the things of God. That's why he's asking this question. If he wasn't, he would ask a different question. Or he would be going to a different person because he doesn't care about spiritual things. He comes to the right person because Jesus has gathered his attention, hasn't he? As he does Throughout his lifetime, Jesus attracts people who are looking for truth. This guy's looking for truth, and he comes with the exact right question. And Jesus gives him the answer. He says, well, I've done all those things. And Jesus says, well, you're still missing one thing. And in, in fact, in the translation that Joe read for us, the guy asked the question, "What? I'm missing something. What is that, what is that thing? And Jesus answers him, of course, you need to go sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And then you come follow me. And so the guy chose his money over something that he wanted. That's an addiction. I think that's fair to say. I don't know if you've ever uh, done this before. I found myself doing this, and, and Keith brought it up during the, the seminar Tuesday. If you've ever been searching through your phone and just like, oh, man, I need to put my phone down. I need to focus on the kids or or what this person from me is saying, or the work, or, or whatever you're doing. You just kind of drew, drew out your phone in a moment of, uh, I don't know, boredom, or uh, in a moment of, of uh, a lapsed moment in your mind you needed to check out for a second. So you drew out your phone, and you started, you started playing, checking on your email, or playing on Facebook, or whatever. And you thought, oh, I need, to, I need to focus. And so you put your phone down, and then... You don't even realize it, but you find yourself picking that thing back up and you're scrolling through it again, aren't you? You ever, you ever been, been there, done that? You know why? It's because we're addicted to this. That, that's what an addiction does. It, it forces us, almost compels us to do the activity um, that we're addicted to. This thing was designed to get us addicted to it. 
And so if you don't think that you're struggling with addiction, you might want to take a second look. Most of us are. In fact, one of the articles I read as I was working through this material for this week uh, said that every American is addicted to something. Phones are too prevalent. Um, substances are too prevalent. Gambling's too prevalent. Alcohol's too prevalent. There's pornography's far too prevalent. There's just too many things, too many options for us to be addicted to, to reach out and grab a hold of us for us not to be struggling with something. But it's not a new thing. This guy was alive when Jesus was alive. So the last 2,000 years, certainly, it's been a prevalent problem. But it really goes back farther than that, doesn't it? You can trace this all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? People have always struggled with addictions. And so what are we going to do? Um, that's, that's really the question. What I thought was so interesting when Keith was talking, I thought this, this is a biblical concept. He didn't portray it like that, although I'm sure he knew, knew of this, this concept. But he said the first step into getting someone into recovery, the very first thing that, that makes them start thinking, well, I've got a problem and, and I need to solve this. I need to find help. The very first step in that direction was when their actions affected other people. When what they were doing hurt someone else. I thought, man, that, that's a biblical concept, isn't it? You find it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, Paul talks about this to the Philippian congregation. This idea that our actions affect other people, sometimes negatively. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so we, we talk about this verse quite a bit because I think it's a cornerstone um, of, of our faith that we treat each other as more significant than ourselves. You're more important than I am. And when the addict comes in contact with that thought, it's the very first step to finding help. I thought, how true is that? Like when you can, when you can actually acknowledge that what you have done, your actions, have hurt someone else. That's when it starts clicking together for us and we start... We start making these connections. This activity is harmful, not just, not just for me. Because a lot of times we, when we deal with addictions, we think, well, this addiction, it's certainly harmful, but all, the only one I'm really harming is myself, right? It's not at all the case. Whoever you're connected with is also being harmed by your addiction. And so I thought it was just so interesting that when he said that when they can see that their addiction is causing harm to other people. That's the very first step into them seeking recovery, them looking for help. That's a biblical idea. We all need to be like that. That should be the first thing that the church thinks through, that when my actions infringe or hurt you, I can't allow that because you're more significant than, than me. So I thought that was really interesting. One of the things um, that I think is going to be helpful for us as, as we think through what a biblical concept of addiction is, uh, is we need to surround ourselves with people that can help us. We've got to surround ourselves with people that can hold us accountable, people that want our good. Because not everybody wants your good, right? Some people are okay if you fail. Maybe it's not something that they're, they're focused on. Maybe your failure is not something that, uh, that they're trying to accomplish. They still care. Yet you haven't really entered their thoughts. That's not true in the church, right? We, we look after each other, we care for each other, and we try to make each other better. So certainly inside the church, this ought to be true. We can find a spot to hold each other accountable, to help each other thrive in God's kingdom. Stories told about 
these three sisters, they're, they're 96, 94, and 92. The 96-year-old's getting into the bathtub, and she's got one leg in and one leg out, and she forgets, all of a sudden becomes confused and thinks, was I getting into or out of the bath? And so she calls to her 94-year-old sister, and she calls for help. And the 94-year-old sister says, I'll be right there. And she starts walking up the stairs, and she gets about halfway up, and she forgets whether she's going up the stairs or coming back down them. And so she calls out to the 92-year-old sister who's, who's at the eating table, and uh, she says, well, I'll be right there with you. And it's a good thing my memory doesn't have as many lapses as y'all's does, knock on wood. And then she said, I'll be right there just as soon as I figure out who's at the door. Right? <laughs> we need people around us that we can trust, that are for our good, that want to help us. And certainly that is found in the church. But people are not perfect. Uh, even us in the church, we're not perfect, are we? We do our best. We try. Um, but we stumble and, and we, we make poor decisions. But finding people that can hold you accountable in your recovery process, whatever the addiction is, is don't, don't think that it's not prevalent among the church. I'm sure it is. But whatever your addiction is, you have, we have to find people that we can allow in to see that, to see um, what you might think of as very ugly, as, as very um, counter to God. We need to allow people to see that addiction in us while at the same time understanding that people aren't perfect. And, and so this could, um, there could be some, some hiccups in, in this process. That's what the addiction tells you, right? It, it tells you that you've got to keep this quiet, that no one else is struggling with this, that everyone will judge you for this, that you will be castigated for this, that this is your problem. And so it has to stay in the darkness. I don't know if you know this or not, but sin is the most addictive thing around. You, you think heroin's bad or cocaine's bad or whatever, fill in the blank for substance abuse or gambling or alcohol or whatever, fill in the blank. Those things don't hold a candle to sin, do they? Sin is the most addictive substance around, and it's something we all struggle with, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We, we, every single one of us have sinned. We've got to find a way to hold each other accountable, to be in intimate enough relationships with each other so that we can hold each other accountable so we can hold each other up so that we can help each other as we struggle through being addicted to sin because it doesn't go away not even uh, at your baptism it, it still stays there doesn't it and you're passionate and you're fervent and, and you're looking for opportunities to help in the kingdom of God to, to, to bless his good kingdom right and it doesn't take long before sin starts pulling you back down doesn't it? It's the most addictive substance on the planet. We've got to find a way to short-circuit that among us. The only way that Scripture says that we can do that is in intimate relationships with each other where we can hold each other accountable so we can hold each other up and so that we can help each other thrive in God's kingdom. Samson may be a good illustration for us here. He's in Judges 16. His story, at least the one that we want to focus on, is in Judges chapter 16. He chooses the wrong person to share his secret with. Of course, you know Samson. Uh, he has uh, a gift from God. He has this incredible strength. Um, he has been a Nazarite since his birth, meaning that his hair has never been cut. He's never drank wine. He's never touched a dead body. If he were to do those things, his strength would be taken away from him. This is not a vow he made, it's a vow his parents made. Um, and so, or at least it's a vow that was uh, incumbent upon him. And so, uh, he meets a woman named Delilah, and she is his worst enemy. Instead of being an intimate person who holds him accountable, she is an intimate person who stabs him in the back. And so... She keeps asking, 
because she's been paid off by the Philistines. How can you be subdued? Because the Philistines and Samson are in constant uh, battle. It's not Israel in the Philistines, it's Samson in the Philistines. One man against an entire nation, and he's thwarting them at every opportunity. He's waging war against thousands of them and winning. Um, God's doing incredible things through Samson. So the Philistines are looking for a way to drag him down, uh, to subdue him. And so they pay off this woman, Delilah. Tell us how he can be subdued. And so she pleads with him, tell me how you can be um, tied up. What, what's the secret to your strength? And so he tells her that seven fresh strings, seven fresh thongs, if they've never been dried, uh, if you tie me up with those things, I'll... My strength will be gone. I'll be as strong as any other man. So she tries it. And uh, she ties him up with these strings. And she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he busts out this, uh, the strings and sends the Philistines fleeing. At that point, you've got to realize something's going on, right? If you're Samson, you've got to realize she doesn't have your best hopes or your best uh, intentions in mind. So she says again, what, what is the secret to your strengths? So he says, well, new ropes. If, if a rope has never touched anyone, then if you, you uh, tie me up with those new ropes, then that'll be, I'll be as weak as any of them. She, she does that. And again, the Philistines are upon you. He breaks the ropes, right? She does this uh, with tying his hair in a loom. He keeps on making up these things that are the secret to his strength. And he keeps lying to her, obviously. Um, and finally, she nags him until he tells her uh, that he's been a Nazarite and she shaves his head, and his strength is lost. God has left him. Uh, and so at that point, after all of his strength is gone, she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he has this really interesting verse. You, you, might, you might need to look at it. It's verse 19. Judges chapter 16, verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his, from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So one of the saddest senses in the Bible, isn't it? God's gone from him, and he doesn't even know it. This guy's addiction had brought him low. But it's going to get way worse from here on out because they blind him, um, they gouge out his eyes, and they set him treading meal in, in their, uh, their granary. So he's basically pushing a giant rock around in a circle. And we don't know how long he does that, but he trusted the wrong person with his, with his secret. And so you need to pick the right person, but certainly that person is in the church uh, because they have your best interests at heart. Here's some things I think you can learn. Um, once we get into relationship with someone, once we get into relationship with people that can hold us accountable, that will help us thrive in the kingdom, that will help us kick our addictions. These are some of the things that, the, some of the benefits to being in that kind of relationship. You're not going to be able to do it alone. It's interesting what Samson says here in verse 20, I will go out and I will do these things. He had been trusting completely in himself, hadn't he? But that's not how we break addictions. That's not how the Bible says we break addictions. These things are done in community. So if we would be in community with others, if we want to break the addictions that we're struggling with, whatever those things are, we have to be in that kind of relationship with people. That's not something we're accustomed to. Most of us, is it? That's, that's a difficult, uh, a new type of relationship, but I think it's a necessary relationship. And while we're careful, while not everyone is allowed into that, um, that circle of trust, uh, that board of directors for your life, there are certainly benefits. You don't have to live in isolation anymore. That, that's what sin really wants you to do. It wants you to live in darkness, to keep this secret, to never tell anyone. 
for it to just thrive. Because that's what sin does in the darkness, it thrives. It just multiplies. And with no one knowing about it except you, it can just multiply and thrive until finally it blows up. And you find yourself in a situation like Samson's. If we are to beat the addiction, if we are to honor Christ in our bodies, we can't live in isolation. The good news is the church was designed so you don't have to live in isolation. We were designed to be a part of each other. You also can experience forgiveness and grace. One of the really beautiful stories in the Old Testament is when Esau accepts Jacob back. Jacob has been a deceiver since literally his birth. In fact, his name means deceiver, right? Um, and so you're, you're familiar with uh, the fact that, that Jacob uh, steals Esau's birthright and cons him out of his blessing. Um, and, and so Esau doesn't have anything left from, him, from, from their father. Uh, he, he's, he's bereft of everything. Uh, Jacob has taken everything from him. Uh, and so Esau is so angry at him, he's ready to kill him. And so Jacob has to leave. He's gone for 14, 15 years. And he finally comes back uh, after that time period. And he's afraid that Esau still has those hard feelings toward him. And so he starts sending out uh, these offerings, these, these blessings for, for his brother Esau. Uh, he sends out several um, livestock, several groups of livestock. And by the time Esau meets with Jacob, Esau's heart has been softened and the forgiveness and grace that Jacob had hoped he would find there was actually there in Esau. And so we can find that forgiveness and grace as well in these type of intimate relationships where we hold each other accountable because we look at each other as more significant than we view ourselves, right? I want to help you because you're more significant than me. And you want to help me because I'm more significant than you. And so we live in these type of relationships and we put ourselves in these kinds of intimate relationships. Though it's not easy, it is necessary for these benefits. Are, they're too good. They're too vast to be left on the table. Joseph's brothers were able to experience this kind of forgiveness and grace after uh, their sin, when he had been second in command of Egypt, he actually is able to save their lives. Uh, they were starving to death and finally make their way to Egypt. And you, you all know the story. And so they, they come finally and for the second time. Uh, and he reveals himself, who he is to them. And, uh, and, and he's able to extend that kind of forgiveness and grace to them. That's something that we can find in the church. It's nowhere else. It is here, and it is among us. Well, final, I think the final benefit maybe is that you're released from pride. Uh, like we said, Samson thought he could do this all on his own. He was wrong, and so are we. You, you cannot do this thing on your own. You can't, you can't conquer sin on your own. You, you need the church. You need, we need each other, and obviously we need Christ to expunge these, these sin. Uh, from us. We cannot do this thing on our own. We're not strong enough. And so we're released from pride uh, when we live in these kinds of intimate relationships. We just allow people to see us for who we are. We struggle. There's no surprise there. The Bible tells you you're going to struggle, right? And so we look for these intimate relationships where we can hold each other accountable, where we can help each other do well so that we can thrive so that other people will come to know him through uh, the example that our lives set. Those are some of the thoughts I was thinking through uh, as, as we walked through this addiction seminar. I think it is so prevalent um, in our world, especially in our community, that we can set a huge example, that we can make a big, um, have a, the church can have a big benefit if we live in this kind of way, if we live with these kinds of relationships. What is possible?
God can do amazing things through this type of relationship, through a church that focuses on this type of relationship, who knows that the strength is not in us, but it is in Him. And so we access that strength through His church, and we find forgiveness for our sins through the power of baptism. Tonight, if you're struggling, we want to pray for you that you can be everything that God would have you to be. Uh, if you need to be baptized, we'd love to sit down and study the Bible with you and talk about salvation um, and, and aid you in any way we can. If you have any need tonight, why don't you come as we stand and sing? Good evening, church family. Some quick announcements before we are dismissed. As a reminder, that hometown love at the fairgrounds has been postponed till May 20th. Also, uh, this week, Flatwoods is uh, having their gospel meeting. Uh, this at the end of this uh, this coming Sunday will be our potluck. Everyone is invited to that. Life group three, that's Jeremy and Dickie's life group, will be in charge of setup and cleanup uh, for that. Also, May 6th at 5 o'clock, the preschool through 5th grade will be building bird feeders. And May 12th is the teen lock-in at 10 o'clock. Uh, May 21st is senior reception. You have Blake Trevathan, Lucy Dempsey, Mason Ward, and Steeler Leak graduating. Um, also, Life Group 1, that's Rick and Chad's Life Group, will be hosting their monthly uh, Life Group meeting uh, after morning services on the 21st. Remember, continue to keep in our prayers, keep Jim Wilgus in our prayers, Terry Leap, Jim Haney, Amber Spitzer, Karina Calicote, Charlie and Alice Boso, and uh, Leslie Maynard in your daily prayers this week. Uh, that's all the announcements I have. If you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been, been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. And we'll sing one more song we dismissed in prayer. Let's close this evening with Sanctuary. We'll sing this song and then have our closing prayer.
Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day that, that we could be together to worship you and to honor your holy name. We're thankful, Lord, for the message delivered, and we pray, Lord, that we do strengthen each other and help each other when we see a need and, and show the love of Christ to each and every one here, not only here in our own congregation, but outside these walls too, Lord. Help us, Lord, when we fail you and, and that we might learn from our mistakes, Lord, and, and try to do better and be a better Christian man or woman. We thank, thank you, Lord, for what you do in our lives. We ask you, Lord, to go with us throughout the week, no matter where we go, that we take you with us and get, give you the glory and the honor in everything that we say and do. We pray for those, Lord, that could not be here, those that are suffering, help us to do our part, Lord, to meet whatever need we can help with. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 